Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... (laughs) Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, We guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hi, this is Newt. 2020 is going to be one of the most extraordinary election years of our lifetime. I want to invite you to join my inner circle as we discuss each twist and turn in the presidential race in my members-only Inner Circle Club. You'll receive special flash briefings, online events, and members-only audio reports from me and my team. Here is a special offer for my podcast listeners. Join my Inner Circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. And if you sign up for a one- or two-year membership, you'll get 10% off your membership price and a VIP Fast Pass my live events. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. Use the code podcast at checkout. Sign up today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast and use the code podcast. Hurry, this offer expires February 14th. On this episode of Newt's World, This Easter Sunday, I really want to introduce you to somebody that Callista and I have grown to love and who we just think is a remarkable person, Joan Lewis. I think you're going to find her fascinating. She was born and raised in the United States. She attended St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Then she taught French for five years in the United States, but that wasn't her future. So she moved to Rome and she began her career as a journalist. In 1990, she was invited to work for the newly created Vatican Information Service and the Holy See Press Office as the English language writer and editor. Then, after representing the Holy See at many United Nations conferences, 
she moved to EWTN. Since 2005, she has served as EWTN's Rome Bureau Chief. Through her many years, she's been in the company of five popes. She's personally met four of them. Since we've gotten to know each other, I can tell you, there's no one more unique, more engaging, and frankly, a little bit wacky than Joan Lewis. She's devoutly Catholic. She knows everyone in Rome. I am pleased to welcome her as my guest. Joan, would you just share with our listeners your story of baking cookies for the Pope? Well, one day I was reading a story about this amazing pontiff from Poland, John Paul, St. John Paul, as we know him today. And it was a story not about his travels or his speeches, homilies, anything else. It was a story about John Paul the man and how he lived his daily life, what his favorite foods were. And in that sentence about his favorite foods, we had... Pope John Paul loves chocolate. And, of course, I'm a chocoholic, so the first thing I thought of was I had made cookies for a lot of people in the Vatican. And the first thing I thought of was, well, why wouldn't the Pope perhaps like some cookies, maybe even brownies? So I made a couple dozen brownies and maybe three or four dozen cookies for the whole staff of the papal household. And I bought a beautiful box to put them all in and called his secretary, whom I knew, and said, Monsignor Stanislaw, I have something for the Holy Father, and and I think you'll like it too, but I want to give it to you in person. Well, could I come over at 5.30? And so I brought the box of brownies and cookies over at 5.30, and that turned out to be the first of many times that I made cookies for a pope. And I got a thank you note or a phone call from Monsignor Stanislaw, uh, now Cardinal Stanislaw Zivitz, every single time I baked cookies. And sometimes he'd see me in person, we'd meet somewhere in the Vatican, he'd say, I did tell you how much the Pope likes your cookies the last time you baked them, right? So that was the beginning. And why shouldn't there be a second time and a fifth time and a tenth time? So that's my story. What I think is intriguing about your life is the Vatican, on the one hand, is the center of a religion with a billion, 300 million people. And on the other hand, it's a really tiny town. I think, what, a quarter square mile total? Yet inside this little town, there are all sorts of personalities and people who relate to each other, primarily as people in a way that I think sometimes folks might not appreciate. And you've done this amazing job of wandering through here for years and getting to know people. I mean, I've been with you, and cardinals and others will wander up to you. And I was with you, as, as you remember, St. Patrick's in New York, when Cardinal Dolan was uh, reminiscing about when he used to be here at the North American College. And as he put it, you were making limoncello in your bathtub. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, there are just things here that are so human. And I, and I would like, if you don't mind, I want to go back and begin at the beginning, because I'm a historian by training. How did you get interested in Rome and in the Vatican. I mean, tell us about your early life, which I think was, what, in Chicago? 
in Chicago suburb, Oak Park, Illinois. That's where I grew up, and I attended high school in River Forest. St. Mary's of Notre Dame was my university. And then my third year of university, I was majoring in French and minoring in political science. And my third year in college was spent in Switzerland. And in our academic year, we had many, many weeks of travel. We had a six-week spring vacation, three in Italy, three in France. And I want to tell you, I just crossed the border from Switzerland into Italy, and my life changed. I don't know if it was something in the air. I don't know if it was the Parmesan cheese that I put on everything but dessert. It was the music, the people, their love of life. They were my people. I just fell in love with Italians, fell in love with Italy. And I remember standing by a fountain in Rome with three of my college friends, and I said, I'm coming back here someday to Rome. I'm going to live here and work here and die here. It took a while to make that happen because I did not go to college in the age of Internet. There was no Internet. You had to write real letters. You had to write everything by hand. But it took a few years, made a few acquaintances, and then it ended up that actually my college had a program in Rome. They opened a program in Rome. They had an opening for one year. And I knew if I could get my foot in the door for one year, then I could open a lot of other doors. And that's exactly what happened. I worked for St. Mary's on their Rome program, met many other people, some of whom were Vatican people, priests whose theses I ended up typing. And then through them, I met many other people at the Vatican. I didn't work in the Vatican in the first years I was in Rome, but I eventually had been in this, returned to the States briefly, came to Rome on a vacation, and was offered a job at a new office in the Holy See Press Office. It's called the Vatican Information Service. John Paul set it up in 89, and it really opened and functioned in 1990. I was asked to work for that office. So that was the beginning of my Vatican career. But let me take you all the way back for a minute. So you've, you've come here as a young lady and still in college. You look around, you fall in love with the, with Rome and with Italy. You show up to teach at your alma mater, and, and what are you teaching at that point? I was asked to work in the main office of our campus here in Rome, and also to liaise with the students. Because of my knowledge of Italian, which was not as good then as it is now, many years later, I was asked to liaise with the students for any single need that they had, any problems they had, and that could have been bringing them to a doctor's office because they had the flu or something. But in the meantime, I was in Rome learning a lot about Rome, learning the language. I knew I only had a year. I had to make something happen at the end of that year and move on, and, and that's what I did. Nowadays, you have this marvelous apartment. Where were you staying when you first got here, I mean, you're, you've oh, arrived yes. in Rome and you're looking around as a young American. And dreaming, of course. People were surprised when I said my dad gave us our Ph.D. And you asked me what that was. I said it's passion, hard work, and dreams. The passion and the hard work, I guess, got me to Rome. And then I was dreaming. What am I going to do? What kind of a contribution can I make? I never knew I'd be where I am now or the years at the Vatican. But in any event, my dream, obviously, was to have a beautiful place to live, in answer to your question. I started out by living in the hotel. All the students, we lived in a hotel. Now, at the end of a year, I had 
some savings. So it was like, your first apartment's going to be small because my savings were small. The apartment I live in now overlooks the Dome of St. Peter's, and it's stunning. It's in a building that is owned by the Vatican. The Vatican was given a lot of property in Rome many, many years ago, 1929, when the Vatican was compensated for all the property that had been taken by the Italian government to form what today we know as the country of Italy. And so the Catholic Church was given land and buildings. They were given money. And they were also what we know today as Vatican City State was created on February 11th, of 1929. I knew that as a Vatican employee, I would have the right to an apartment in a Vatican-owned building, and took me a lot of years to make that happen. But my last trip to the real estate office, I told the Monsignor who was there at the time, I said, I'm going to be just like the widow in Luke 18, who insisted that she get what is due her from the judge. I can see you <laughs> looking at this poor guy and him starting to melt. <laughs> well, you know, my dad told us never to be backward about coming forward. And that was one of those occasions when I just, I had waited so long to make this happen, working at the Vatican. And all of a sudden, you know, in July of 2004, it happened. Clifton and I are still overwhelmed every time we drive by Via della Conciliazione, and we look down that great street and see St. Peter's. What is it like to wake up every morning with St. Peter's in your window? I have to be honest, not only wake up in the morning, but going to bed at night, I never take it for granted. I'm overwhelmed by the privileges that I have had in covering the church, in working for the church, getting to know, you know, we could fill an entire show just with names of people and events. But I never take it for granted. I look out at the dome and I see my faith. I see the church. I do see St. Peter. When I walk by it, I've walked by it, can I say thousands of times? I probably can. Oh, sure. I probably can, for sure. So to wake up to that and to go to bed with that, I'm thankful, grateful, delighted, surprised. I never cease being surprised at things. That's one quality, I think, that can bring you through life, many, many moments of life. Well, it's part of what makes Jones Rome and your reports and everything you do. You're always sharing with the rest of us your newest discovery, and you every week have discoveries. I'm Joan Lewis, and this is Rome Dispatch. Welcome back to Rome Dispatch. It's been a while since we've been in touch, but if there's a big event in Rome, EWTN and yours truly are going to bring it to you. And of course, we're coming from Rome because of the big canonization on Sunday, the canonization of two saints. So the church has two saints, two new saints. And by the way, 80 popes before today, before Sunday's canonization, have been canonized. So with John the 23rd and John Paul II, we will have 82 popes who will have been canonized in the history of the church. So I don't think you've ever gotten bored. Oh, no, that is not a word in my vocabulary. Italians, they say, um, have you ever thought of retiring? And I said, no. I said, in English, there's two meanings to the word retire. One is to leave your job, to definitively start a, a new life. The other is go to bed. I think I'll retire for the night, and that's me. 
That's my retirement. You retire for the night. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. One of the things you surprised me with after I'd known you for years was that your first pope is, I think, a Polaroid picture that you took when you were in college. Share with all of us, because it's a very important pope who's often, I think, neglected. No, so John XXIII was the first pope I ever met, March of 1961. And at that time, there was no audience hall. It was the Hall of Blessings, which is right where the five windows are above St. Peter's entrance, the atrium, and the main loggia, where the popes come out and speak a couple times a year. Behind those windows is a beautiful hall, the Hall of Blessings. There were just a couple hundred of us. It was amazing. And when I brought my camera up, some little brownie camera or something, to take a picture, in those days, you didn't know if your picture turned out till you had it developed. So it was going to be like when I got back to Switzerland, you know. And here's this amazing picture of this little rotund happy man sitting in a chair. That's when popes were carried by the Sediari. Sitting in the chair, his arms out like this, a big smile on his face. I showed that to people, the press, when he became a saint, along with John Paul in 2014. In some ways, he's in the shadow of John Paul II. Why, in your judgment, is he so important in the history of the Church? I mean, John XXIII, it seems to me, is the guy who really unleashes all the modernization that then John Paul II and Benedict are really sort of the completion of a very, very long, almost 40-year project. Well, with John the 23rd, first of all, if you could get to know the man, he was a farmer's son. He was the most down-to-earth pope probably in the last century. Well, except I'd put John Paul actually in that same category. But John the 23rd, as we know, he was a diplomat. He was in many countries. He was a diplomat for the Vatican in Paris. He was in Turkey. He made friends wherever he went because he was interested not only in the president of a country, he was interested in the guy who did the gardening in the house where he lived. He was very, very human. With this experience, he just had such a broad sense of humanity, of people, and a very good sense of the church, and he knew some things had to change. So without going into all the specifics, we know that he opened the doors for Vatican Council too. And it was, of course, um, Paul VI who, who closed the doors, who I also did meet. So I've actually been in the presence of five popes and spoken to four, which is rather wonderful. But John was in many, many ways bigger than life. And of course, I hope that people know that if they go into St. Peter's Basilica, his incorrupt body is below an altar, just off the right-hand side, maybe two-thirds the way up the basilica towards the main altar. But he had a special love for children. He loved families. This is where I see a parallel between John the 23rd and John Paul. And by the way, John Paul took his name. He Why did he have a double name? He wanted to be for the church, for the world, what John was in his own personal and even historical way, and also what Paul, John's successor, was. He was a very different type of person, much more of a studious, erudite person that people didn't feel they could approach him as easily as they could a John. But both men had enormous contributions, and that's why John Paul took the double name, because he wanted to reflect and be those same gifts to the church. You know, something I've never understood, if you 
and you may want to correct me if I got this wrong, but if you walk in the Papal Gardens, there's a tower up sort of a, towards the top, and somebody was telling me that later in his life, John Paul lived in that tower. I believe the story is that he lived there while work was being done on the papal apartments in the Vatican, because actually the the guest rooms in that tower at the time were, or for many, many years, were for important guests, usually church guests. So like you'd have the patriarch of the, the ecumenical patriarch, Bartholomew, I believe, he has stayed there. So so, so he wasn't hiding, it was just practical. So, oh, absolutely. <laughs> but he was a pope who would go out of the Vatican at night. He would just have his little black priest vestments on. He'd go outside of Vatican City because he knew Rome before he was Pope and he could just walk about. That's what I know Pope Francis misses, being able to walk about the city. But John would go out and maybe if somebody said to come into his home, sometimes they didn't recognize him right away. So he, you could be sitting on an Italian you could in be a in trust Roman every, restaurant oh, yeah. have, having a glass of wine right. and here comes the Pope walking by. Has anybody ever told you you look like John the 23rd, you know? And so he also had a great habit of when he would go out in a car, if he ever drove by himself, he had a great habit of locking the key inside the car when he would close the door. And there was actually a keysmith. I interviewed this person for an article years ago because I love the human side. There was actually a person who had a key-making place not too far from the Vatican. He became the key maker and opener of car doors for, for John, John the, the 23rd. 23rd. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I wonder, was he the last one who didn't automatically have security and drivers? And I mean, nowadays oh, it's, did, it's a little hard to imagine a Pope sure. nowadays wandering off on his own, leaving, locking his key in his car. Right. You know. He did have security in those days. There would always have been security, but I don't think like today. When you think of the threats that that the world, that individuals, that the church, et cetera, face today, you just have to, in the face of someone like a pope or a president, you just have to have the proper securities. And that'll mean numerous people around. When we come back, Joan and I talk about the beauty and pace of life in Rome. You know, you, you talked a little bit about the first time you crossed the border from Switzerland and just the sense of Italy, which Cliss and I have had. And I've, I, I told my granddaughter that Americans live to work and Italians work to live. And that there's, there's something about Rome, but all of Italy, I think, that is so magically different. Well, the Vatican, in that sense, is very Italian. How would you try to communicate the rhythm of being at the Vatican and what it's like and just the, the relationships and the way people interact. As an American, when I first came here, when I saw the pace, the very slow pace of how things were done, you just wanted to get things done. Come on, guys, we can get this done by three o'clock today. It doesn't have to 
go over till tomorrow morning. I was fortunate to work in an office for the Vatican, which we had a schedule to keep up. Our job was to transmit a summary every single day of the Pope's speeches in four languages, speeches, homilies, events at the Vatican, press conferences. And we had to get that out there for the press by about one fifteen or one thirty, two o'clock. So we were on a schedule that was much, much more American. Here, you start now, here's your deadline. It has to be out by that hour. I liked that as an American. But sometimes persuading other offices in the Curia to get their information to you. Let us know if Cardinal so-and-so is going on a trip to wherever so that we can put that in our news article so people can see the universal church at work. Persuading other offices to do that. My boss and I actually visited when this Vatican Information Service was set up. We went around to visit every single cardinal that ran an office in the Vatican to let them know that Vatican Information Service was a news service, a Vatican wire service, but we were on their side. We were not an outsider looking in. We were part of the Vatican. And bit by bit, yes, they began to trust us more. We're not out there to denigrate any office, but rather to build up an office to get the Vatican's story out. And what I loved were actually were the moments when there weren't a lot of papal events or speeches, such as times when the Pope would go away for vacation to Castel Gandolfo for long periods. And then I loved to be able to do stories about Castel Gandolfo, do something about the history and the gardens and the farm that's out there, do the history of all the different offices in the Vatican, some of which go back, you know, to the 14 or 1500s. Vatican diplomacy goes back to the 400s, with the oldest diplomatic corps on earth. Calissa and I were just up at Castel Gandolfo the other day. It's about 45 minutes away from Rome. It's up on a little volcanic mountaintop. It is part of the original agreement in 1929, the Lateran Accords. Uh, so it's extraterritorial. It's actually the Vatican, not Italy. Vatican II. It's a palace. <laughs> Because the current pope doesn't really like going down there. It's become an amazing museum. They, yeah. they have the tape recordings. I went through as a, somebody who used to study history. I mean, I found myself just overwhelmed with the stories. And the one pope who took, I think it was 275 votes to be chosen in the conclave. And then the other thing I didn't know that, of course, you did know. But when they talk about the papal gardens at Gandolfo, Castel Gandolfo, I'd always thought it was this little small area next to the palace. It's actually, the garden is larger than the Vatican. Then, then, uh, yes. It's amazing. And they have, a, they have a farm. They produce milk and eggs for the Pope. It's and a, they make their own yogurt and butter, and that's brought in. Can you yeah. buy it at the, uh, yes. oh, the grocery store here? I often buy their milk and often buy their yogurt. Huh. So that comes in at 6 o'clock in the mornings. I'm not sure about Pope Francis, but I know his predecessors, things were brought right to their kitchens in the Apostolic Palace. So that if Benedict or John Paul wanted strawberry yogurt for lunch, they had it from Castel Gandolfo. But Castel Gandolfo is about, that's 55 hectares, and this Vatican City State, which we're close to right now, is 44. It's the size of an average 18-hole golf course. 108.7 acres. Yeah, it's <laughs> remarkable. So, and, and there's also, as I understand, there's a train that you can take at the Vatican. Is it on Saturdays? On Saturdays or only, right. So you can actually get on the train exactly. and ride down to Castel Gandolfo 
and then come back up to the Vatican. For anybody who signs up for the full trip, you begin at the Vatican Museums, you have an hour and a half there, then you're brought to the town of Castel Gandolfo, and then smaller buses bring you up to the palace. The Vatican was historically a very, very male, maybe the most male-dominated as any place on the planet. You were a genuine pioneer. What's it been like all these years to gradually become as a, nowadays you're totally accepted by the hierarchy and people, oh, sure. virtually everybody knows you. People always asked me in the early days if anything was special about being a woman or was it, usually they asked, was it more difficult to be a woman? And I said, I didn't feel that anyway. I don't know. I guess I've always approached the priests, the bishops, the cardinals that we had to deal with in my work when I worked at the Vatican and then afterwards. I just approached them as fellow human beings. And I've brought flowers to cardinals who were sick. I'll bake cookies for different offices of the Roman Curia. So I just tried to be me. I would treat a cardinal with due respect for the office. That that goes without saying. But why couldn't I also see him as a friend? And once they knew that you saw them as a friend or a human being, things were fine. I never, ever for one moment felt that being a woman was a challenge or difficult or that I was treated differently. The other unusual story was the painting in the bathroom. And you told me the story one time about being at a cardinal's office and what you what happened in terms of just the, the random art that's all over the Vatican. I went to interview, he's now Cardinal Sandri. His office is in the Apostolic Palace. And while I was waiting for him to come, I was with a journalist colleague. While I was waiting for him to come out of the office, we were in a small room. Everywhere you look, I mean, from the ceiling on down, literally in these rooms, there's history, there's art, there's uh, amazing, you know, art objects. And I saw a teensy small window, probably only two feet high and one foot across. And I went over to see what I could see through that window. Where was I in Vatican City State? And I looked out the window. I turned around to come back, and I saw breathtaking mosaics, a very small room. I literally could have held my arms out and touched the right and the left-hand walls. I asked my colleague, I said, you have to come and see this. This is magnificent. He said, no, no, no. What, you know, what if the archbishop walks in? I said, well. So a few minutes later, the archbishop comes in. And we have our interview much, much longer than expected. At the end, I asked him, and I don't know why, but I switched to Italian. I said, Your Excellency, what is that beautiful little room a few feet down here? And he took my arm, and he smiled, and he said, That's the best question you've asked today. And it turned out to be what used to be a papal bathroom. It was a room painted by Raphael. And so I'm look. The only thing that it was any sign it was a bathroom was the tube coming out of the wall that, where water would have come out. I had the same experience when we were visiting. I think it was the Secretary of State for Foreign Relations or State Relations. That entire corridor, the ceiling has been was painted by oh. Raphael, and I have this image that it was a slow summer, and he said to the Pope. You know, I could use some work. And the Pope said, well, we got the ceiling. You know, but I mean, don't you, when, as you walk around here, when you take the, I mean, the Vatican Museum itself is enormous. But when you take all of the art in right. Vatican City, it has to be the largest art collection in the world. It's breathtaking. I have to say, whenever I'm in the museums or the Apostolic Palace, 
I am in awe of the art of the men, many of whom, fantastic artists, they were mere pupils of a Michelangelo or a Raphael. I mean, you go into the Borgia rooms and the fact that hundreds of years later, you are still looking at this amazing art. It never ceases to overwhelm me, just the sheer quantity of it. And I know people have said, well, you know, the Pope talks about feeding the poor. Why don't you sell the art? The Vatican doesn't consider the art theirs to own. They consider themselves as guardians of art that has been given, that was done by popes or given to popes over the years. And I know one important thing to know about the Vatican Museums is that there's a group called the Patrons of the Vatican Museums. And that came about through an American diplomat, the first American ambassador to the Holy See, William Wilson. And in 1984, he was named ambassador. Shortly after that, or about that same time, he was going through the museums and he asked the director, now, how do you raise money to buy art or to uh, refurbish art, restore a tapestry? And the director said, I think it was Walter Persigotti, and he said at the time, we can't spend money buying art or refurbishing, not when there's hunger in the world, not when there's people out there who need money for humanitarian reasons. So he said, we have to rely on donations, someone wants to give us a painting, money to restore something. And that's how Bill Wilson thought of bringing about this group, the patrons of the Vatican Museums, just so that the church does not have to spend, because it doesn't want to, spend money buying art. Now, if they need to acquire art or repair something, restore something, the money is there through the patrons. So I always think that's an important thing for people to know about the art in the Vatican, because as you know, there's so much of it, the gallery of maps, the beautiful ceilings. Anyone who comes to Rome, if they can spare the time, you can easily spend a day or more. Oh, sure. Uh, it is such an extraordinary museum. And it's so much of it is history in its own right. So it's not just, it's not like going to the Metropolitan Museum or the Louvre, which are great, great museums. But this actually is the living history where the people who, you know, Michelangelo was working here. Michelangelo sure. designed the dome of St. Peter's, and it's one of the 400 things he did in his life. So you're actually in the middle of the production of the art that you're also witnessing. There's a historic context here that you don't get, I think, in any other no. museum in the world. And Paul VI was the great pope for adding to the art. He felt that there was not a very good modern art section, and he did love modern art. And he collected two things for the museums. He got people to donate certain pieces of what we would call modern art. He also had a huge autograph collection. He kept letters from heads of state, and if he could find out whose autograph am I missing. So he had huh. a great autograph collection. There was once an exhibit, oh, probably 20 years ago, in the Vatican on Paul's art collection. So, well, you know, you remind me in terms of the, the sort of historic depth here. One of the things that is limited in the number of people per day that can do it, but it's called the Scavi Tour. Oh, yeah. And can, can you just share, because in terms of giving you a feeling for why St. Peter's matters and why it's historically so central to uh, the practice of Christianity, the Scavi Tour, it seems to me, is one of the things that 
just a must. blows your mind. A must. Scavi, of course, uh, from the Italian word for excavations. And in 1949, when they were actually excavating under St. Peter's to create a foundation for a tomb of, I think it was Pius XI, a worker fell through a certain area, ended up in what we would call catacombs. That's the word probably most people would know better. And he finds this underground burial area, and after quite a bit of research, they actually came across the tomb that they knew had to be St. Peter's, which we do now know from many, many tests was where St. Peter was buried. And the fascinating thing is, if you were to take a plumb line from the center of the dome, it goes right through the center of the main altar, right through the floor of the basilica, down into the scavi, right where the tomb of St. Peter is. So the, the scavi tour lasts about an, an hour and a half. You have docents taking you through this pre-Constantine necropolis. You're speechless all the time. Because of the history, you're going back 2,000 years. You're going back to the first Pope, Peter, and then all the other graves, whatever's written on the graves or the, or the little monuments the, is explained by the wonderful people who take you through the Scavi. It is a must. The only thing is groups are small. It's only like 10, 12, max 15 people in a group just because the spaces are so small. There's also a challenge that too many people bring too much carbon dioxide in and that it changes the composition and risks. Sure messing up the bones as as you're actually looking at a real cemetery as it does uh, i mean even in the museums which is why they have such an amazing air conditioning and air freshening system a lighting system etc so but the scavi i don't know how many groups they bring in a day not really that many groups and as i said they're only 12 or 15 they don't allow anyone under the age of 12 if i'm not mistaken but it's definitely worth it for an awesome sense of history. Yeah, I, I talk to people occasionally who, if you're at all claustrophobic, I mean, you're really underground. You are. And you're really in the middle of all of these cemeteries. Uh, and it's quite, I mean, it's, it's and a very very, very narrow experience. passageways uh, and everything, yeah. Uh, but I found myself as a historian and as a Christian, when you finally end up at the center and you have the guide saying to you, Based on every all the data we have, sometime around 60 A.D., this is where they buried Peter. Yeah. And that's why this whole thing, this entire complex, basically circles around his grave. Exactly. And you're looking at 2,000 years of history. To me, it's just astonishing. Well, the original St. Peter's Basilica was built over the grave. That was the whole idea. And that was inaugurated in 326. Many years later... That was raised to the ground for the new current basilica, which we see. That's when so much of what we call the Scavi today was just raised right over. And they had ground fill. So what you and I are walking in today for many, many years was just covered with ground fill when they came in and put all that ground in there as a foundation for the new basilica, which is dedicated, by the way, on the same day in the year 1626, so 326 to 1626. I'm a very, very big uh, fan of Michelangelo just because of the length of his life and the range and and the notion that when you first walk into St. Peter's, over on the right is this magnificent Pieta uh, of of Mary holding Christ in uh, white marble. 
which he did as a very young man. And it's an astonishing piece of sculpture. And then you keep walking in, and you look up, and here's the dome, which he did. I think he's 83. The, and they, and oh, they yeah. call him, and yeah. they say, we got this problem. We can't quite figure the dome out. It's really big. And he said, no, I'll, I'll do it in passing. So his, you look at his entire lifetime yeah. with the Sistine Chapel in between. And, you know, the Pietas is one of only two works he signed. His name, he went to the Basilica one night shortly after the Pietà had been placed in the Basilica, not where it is today, further up towards the main altar. And he happened to be there as two cardinals were walking in the Basilica. And one of them looked at the statue. Gee, I've never seen this before. I wonder who did it. Well, Michelangelo was, what do you mean? You wonder who did it? Yeah, right. And so when they left, he went and he sculpted his name on the band of material that goes across Mary's dress. And the only other piece that he signed was Moses. He sculpted his own image into Moses' huge beard. That's in the Church of St. Peter's in Chains. So the two signed works by Michelangelo. That's wild. Yeah. But, it's, but again, that's part of what I find about Rome, you know, that you've got, and this is I guess a comment in your good sense many, many years ago in deciding to fall in love with Italy. But you've got the church. You've got this extraordinary renaissance and all the different art that came out of that music, sculpture, paintings, architecture. Then you have the Roman Empire. Then you have modern Italy. Exactly. And then you have a really nice little restaurant with some wine and some pasta. I mean, all of this comes together. Everything you could want in life is right here. (laughs) It really, really is. When we come back, we'll talk about one of my favorite restaurants in Rome, where I frequently run into Joe, La Vittoria. One of the things I want you to talk about for just a minute, just for all of our friends who are listening, who may someday come to Rome, the most common place for Calista and me to find you is La Vittoria. You've got to share La Vittoria. La Vittoria, as a matter of fact, as we speak, is 100 years old. They're celebrating their centenary, opened in 1919. The current owner, Claudio, started out a number of years ago, 20 or so years ago, in the kitchen. One of his sons now is following in his footsteps in the kitchen as a chef. But what's wonderful, La Vittoria is about 200 yards off of the left-hand colonnade of St. Peter's Square. It's not the only restaurant in the area, but it surely is the most popular. You have the Swiss Guards go there, so many people from the Roman Curia, people from the North American College. I don't think I have ever had a meal, lunch or dinner, without running into a friend from the Vatican. I think Calista and I are addicted to their pizza. Yeah. Oh, yes. I've seen a few pictures uh, (laughs) uh, uh, on your Facebook page. I think you've been at the table with us. Uh, Oh, I I, I have, too. When we've, you know, had a little Prosecco and a a wonderful slice of pizza or some other fabulous, fabulous pasta. And it's very inexpensive. And it's it's part of what makes Italy so interesting that you can visit St. Peter's walk a couple blocks and be at this really relaxed, pleasant, and yet very good restaurant. 
And this is the kind of thing that Pope Francis misses. He would love to be able, as he did in Buenos Aires, just to be able to walk out and be with people, sit down and, and you know, add a La Vittoria and have a, have a pizza and just enjoy. He, he's dying to have pizza. I mean, you can have it sent in, but that's not the same thing. You know, why eat in when you can go out to this colorful restaurant in the summer? You sit outside and enjoy watching people walk by. You've known and seen close up five different popes. How do you compare them? Well, I think to be precise in mentioning, by the way, the five popes are John the 23rd, Paul the 6th, John Paul, Benedict, and Francis. Those are the five popes in whose presence I've been, and it was the last four that I have had the privilege of speaking to, John Paul, many, many times. But one thing about John the 23rd, when I earlier mentioned that his incorrupt body is in an open casket in St. Peter's Basilica, by incorrupt I mean this is his body. He did not deteriorate into just a, a skeleton form. So you're looking at a pope in this crystal casket that looks like he's simply asleep bodies of people, anybody, not just a pope, when they're going to be beatified, the church asks that their bodies be exhumed. And in his case, of course, it was exhumed, but it was found to be incorrupt. That is to say, he looked like he was just sleeping. And a pope, actually, Cardinal Schivitz made an exception with John Paul. He did not want the tomb open of John Paul for beatification. So it never was. But Lots of interesting stories about the popes. When you talk about the five popes you knew, you got to John Paul II, but there was a very brief John Paul in between who just disappeared. Uh, Right. Can you you describe That must have been a little Uh, unusual. It served, what, 30 days, I think? um, Right. The reason I did not mention one pope, and that was John Paul, we now call him John Paul I, But the pope who was elected after Paul VI only was pope for a month, and he had been the cardinal archbishop of Venice, but uh, Pope Luciani. And the story I love about him is he was actually signing a document, one of the few that he did sign in the month that he was pope. He died in September of 1978. Paul VI had died in August of 78, John Paul first died in September. Then we had John Paul II elected October 16th of 1978. But John Paul, whom we now call the first because there can't be a first unless there's a second, he signed a document one day and he wrote in Latin, John Paul, and he put the Roman numeral one. And the Monsignor standing next to him said, "Um, Your Holiness, you do not put a one before your name. And he looked at him and he said, There will be a John Paul II. That's probably the most, one of the most astonishing stories about John Paul I. So, huh. like Pope Francis, in the beginning, people mistakenly wrote Francis I. He only becomes Francis I if there is a Francis II. In talking about the five popes, you asked me the difference between them. John XXIII, to me, he was like a grandfather. I would love to have sat down next to him. I knew some of the stories. I had read a few things before we met him. And his great, great, great sense of humor. The famous question, of course, when he was asked walking through the Vatican Gardens one day, he was asked by his visitor, oh, now, Your Holiness, how many people work at the Vatican? And he said, well, about half. 
So that's probably one of John's most famous lines. I always felt that I wanted to know him, and I never got to. With Paul VI, he came across as a person you wanted to be, you felt you should be more formal with. He just came across as the intellect, the, and I understand personally that he was a very, very warm person. He cared about the people and their families, those who worked for him and so forth. With John Paul, I had so many more moments to experience with him, and Benedict, f- fewer than John Paul, but more than, an, than any other pope. Benedict, I just absolutely adored. He is such a wonderful gentleman, an erudite person, but for some reason, I did want to get to know him. I felt wonderful in his company. When Benedict looked at you, he had the bluest eyes, which never seemed to show up as that blue in pictures. When Benedict looked at you, you were the only person in the room. What you have just said was of the maximum importance. It was an amazing You only had a few seconds sometimes with popes, but still they could be amazing. And then with Francis, they've been, I've met him three times, more or less fleeting visits. But I was a reader at Mass in his chapel, his private chapel, so we got to talk after that Mass, and that was very, very nice. But again, I think certainly with, with John Paul, approachable. That's how I would say John the 23rd, John Paul, and Pope Francis. The word approachable immediately comes to mind. But anybody who said to me that, oh, Benedict was so cold, and I'd go, oh, wow, you didn't give him a chance. His warmth was a different kind of warmth. Maybe people wouldn't have called him a people's pope, but I did. Benedict is such a scholar. Oh, amazing. One of the great theologians of the 20th century. Oh, amazing. I think that's part of what surrounds his his imagery. But tell me for a minute about, it's it's been fun Watching Callista have an opportunity as the ambassador to meet with Pope Francis and to be in those kind of settings. And he has always been very warm and very charming when he's interacting with her. And he also likes music, and because of her background in the Basilica Choir, she gave him some CDs from the Basilica, and, and he really enjoyed them. I mean, it's a, Good. a clear part of who he is. But you get the sense that, my this is my take anyway, he is the most like a parish priest. And he's not a theologian. He's not a grand strategist. He's a guy who wants to live his religion and in that process bring his flock. And he, he just thinks of it now as a bigger flock. But he really behaves in a lot of ways like a parish priest. I don't know if you would agree with that or not. I think that's what he wants to do more than anything. And, of course, he, he that's why for so long he didn't go out to some of the parishes in Rome like John Paul did almost all of the parishes he visited. Benedict visited a number that John Paul hadn't. But Francis did find out what parishes in Rome had not been visited by a pope, and many were fairly new parishes created since the year 2000. And so he would have 25 people, including like the pastor and assistant pastor, from that parish come to his chapel for Mass in the morning. It's a very different setting, just 25 people, as opposed to maybe hundreds or a thousand or something. But he does care about parish life. I I think you're right. If it was up to him, he'd walk out some morning and go to St. Monica's or some of the other churches within walking distance. I mean, I have, there's one, two, three, four, four places, including St. Peter's, where I could go to Mass within five minutes of my house. Walk. You've been on a number of papal trips 
over the years? Not on the papal plane. I did cover the papal trips. When I worked at the Vatican, we covered the trips from inside Vatican City. We did not go. There was a separate logistics staff from the press office that went. But with EWTN, I've covered various papal visits, mostly, of course, with Benedict. And so it's still on my bucket list to go on the papal plane. Certainly on whose plane I would love to have been all the trips of John Paul, 104 foreign apostolic trips. And then I've forgotten, but it's a very high number, you know, in the 70s, 80s, or 90s in Italy. Oh, it's probably even more than that, where he would visit institutions in Rome, dioceses in other parts of Italy, and and so forth, because he was a very peripatetic pope, for sure. But he never wanted to be away longer than like 12 days. So if he would go to Asia, he'd visit as many countries as he could, but he never wanted to be away from Rome, because popes are also the bishops of Rome. We have to always remember that. And he never wanted to be away from Rome for more than 12 days. One of the great joys for Clouston and me has been getting to know you. And you've been a remarkable friend. I think today, once again, you've outdone yourself. People can find you both through your website at Jones Rome, but also on EWTN. It is Jones Rome. It's my column. You can sign up to have it sent to you. And I can't tell you how blessed I am. Our friendship goes back to, well, 10 years. And it was a pope who brought us together, John Paul, a man we deeply love. And we're delighted he's a saint. So our lives have been intertwined. Washington, our friends there, the choir, now Rome, a pope who's a saint, and a friend who's an ambassador. Yep, as always, Joan, it's been great fun. Thank you for this. It's just been great. It's been my joy. Thank you. Grazie. Thank you to my guest, Joan Lewis. You can find links to many of the sites in Rome we've discussed in this episode, as well as Joan's cookie recipes, photographs of her with the Pope she's met, and some clips from her storied career on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Westwood One. The executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our editor is Robert Borowski. Our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. The music was composed by Joey Salvia. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360 and Westwood One's Tim Sabian, and Robert Mathers. Please email me with your comments at newt at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. On the next episode of Newt's World, on Monday, April 15th, the entire world watched in horror and disbelief as the Cathedral of Notre Dame burned. We're releasing a special episode of Newt's World devoted to Notre Dame, its historical significance, and its importance to Paris and the world. One of my favorite authors is Ken Follett. I'm pleased to welcome him as my guest to talk about Notre Dame. Please join me on this narrative journey, Newt's World. The Notre Dame episode premieres tomorrow. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. 
Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.